Thanks for listening to this sermon from the Image Church. Find out more about us and our weekly services at imagejesus.com. Father in heaven, we know that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. We know that faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. And we also know and feel that hope deferred makes the heart sick, but a desire fulfilled is a tree of life. So God, we confess to you that our hope is often and has not always been in you and in you alone. We confess that our hearts are prone to wander and to rest on the improvement of many petty advances and sinful desires. So I ask that you would set our eyes and our hearts on the only hope that we have in this life and the next. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And in his name we ask, amen. Amen. Um, If you have a Bible or a smartphone, um, I want you to go to the end of it and go to Revelation chapter 21. And I'm going to read verses 1 through 7. Or Why don't we all read this together since we're small and I like to hear responses and voices, so I'm not talking to myself. Here we go. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, I am the Alpha and the Omega. Oh, my bad. Write this down. Sorry, slow up. (laughs) Write this down. For these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. One who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is the word of the Lord. Opening lines matter. But more important than opening lines are closing lines. God is authoring a story. He's the author of all creation. He authored this book for us. And how the story starts usually tells us a little bit about the the trajectory that we're going towards. Um, But you think, A lot of things have gotten off to a good start. We've seen movies, we've read books, we've started the school year, or you've started some new job, and you've read the syllabus, and everything is chipper. Opening lines are important, very important. But closing lines matter even more. Who cares about a story if it doesn't end well, right? 
You hear, uh, think about like a professional athlete. Uh, you know, they're yoked up, they're ready to go, their future's looking bright, and then they fumble the ball. They muff the punt. They strike out. They insert your sports illustration there. Classically, there are two big categories of stories. One is a tragedy and one is a comedy. So think tragedy is Romeo and Juliet. Everyone dies, okay? Ship into iceberg, bus over cliff, tragedy. And then there's comedies. And comedies aren't necessarily funny. They don't have to be. But a comedy classically, is a story that typically ends with happily ever after, with a wedding. You think tragedy ends with a funeral, a comedy ends with a wedding. I saw Pride and Prejudice uh, last week. I've never seen that movie before. That is kind of a stereotypical uh, comedy. Not a funny. They have their wit- witful banter, But it ends with, ah, they're in love, they're cooing to one another, the fireworks. I forget if there's fireworks in it. But you think, a a comedy, um, there's something in our DNA that makes girls love, uh, little girls love the Disney princess movies, right? And we all want this fairy tale ending, but everything in life has told us that fairy tale endings are for fairy tales. This is the real world. You haven't seen the cold concrete of reality yet. But I want to argue that fairy tale endings are actually the story we are living in right now. A fairy tale ending, a happily ever after, is in fact the only hope that we have in this life. So if we're thinking in these categories, what type of story are you living in right now? If you just think for a second, imagine someone is writing your biography, and then we're reading it, or you're reading your own biography. How narcissistic of you. (laughs) Is your story up to this point, however old you are, whether you're 10, 20, 30, 40, and so on, is it a tragedy Everything has gone wrong. Maybe the opening line started really great, or maybe they didn't. Or is it a comedy, and God's the one laughing, you know? It feels like that sometimes. The Bible is unique because it is a story that has a bunch of stories inside of it. So there's all these genres within the Bible, But if you take the narrative as a whole from Genesis to Revelation, I would argue that the Bible is a tragic comedy. It is a tragedy turned into triumph, right? It starts out very nicely. A wedding in a garden, naked and unashamed, at peace, shalom, creation, heaven and earth in unity, And then it goes south, right? The coming of Jesus Christ is not just a coming 
of forgiveness of sins. It is a coming of heaven to earth. It is the rewriting of the story of the history of the world. And you all are in that story, right? We talk about being in Christ and what does it mean to be in Christ? And one of the coolest things that I love about being in Christ is that Christ gets my story and I get his. So the opening lines and the closing lines of my story read Jesus paid it all. The end of the story is life everlasting, eternal life with Jesus. But do you feel that? (laughs) Writing your biography, someone's writing it. Does it feel like Jesus is through and through and all in all? Let's look at verse one in our text together. I'm just gonna march through this text says this, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Now the apostle John, who's writing this vision that he's seeing, Revelation is a crazy book with a lot of crazy things in it. But what he's describing for us is a wedding. Think of all the venues that couples search for for a wedding. Morgan knows. She knows. John and Carrie know. If, you, if you're married, you, you, you go through this process where, okay, where are we going to have this wedding? Are we going to do it in some fancy cathedral? Are we going to do it out on the beach? Going to just do it here in Pangaea, the, the tomb of the earth. I don't think there's ever been a wedding here, but I'm sure it'd be free. <laughs> so John sees this new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. So the scene we're seeing right here is a wedding. New Jerusalem coming down, and God decides, where do I want to have this wedding? I know, a new heavens and a new earth. (laughs) Can't really top that. Can't top that. Huh, this earth couldn't find a location. Fiji was just not nice enough. I think I need a full new heavens and new earth for this wedding. We're talking about God pulling out all the stops, going big. And then if, if you've been to a wedding, you think there's this moment where the music is playing and the, the, the groomsmen and the bridesmaids have come up and everyone's just standing there waiting. Waiting for the revealing of the bride. The music changes. The room is thick with anticipation, right? And then the doors, they crack open. And then the father takes his daughter, walks her down the aisle. Everyone stands up and they just look. (laughs) This is one of those moments in life where just, I'm here to be looked at. (laughs) Everyone's staring at you. And she's walking, smiling, crying, who knows what. This is the scene that John is painting. The bride, the new Jerusalem, 
And notice this. She's coming down out of heaven from God the Father. Like God the Father walking his bride down the aisle to, to, the, to the groom, Jesus. Right? There's something about weddings that tells of the mystery of Jesus and his church. And that's what we have here, this glorious wedding scene. He calls us the New Jerusalem. And you wonder, why does he call us the New Jerusalem? You see, if you remember, Jerusalem is the city that Jesus weeps over in the Gospels. He says, how can it be that a prophet should die outside of Jerusalem? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I would have taken you under my wing like a mother hen. Okay? Jerusalem was supposed to be the royal city. It was the city where King David and King Solomon in all of their splendor ruled at the high point of Israel. But at the same time, Israel killed all the prophets and they crucified their king, Jesus. So at the writing of this text, and, and, I, and I believe that this book was written before um, A.D. 70. But what happened in A.D. 70 was the destruction of Jerusalem. So 40 years after Jesus ascends into heaven, Jesus comes in judgment on Jerusalem. The city is sacked. The temple is burned. And if you can imagine the central place of worship, Jerusalem, the holy city is trampled on. So if you read through the Gospels or read through the, the letters, and it always feels like this, there's this coming judgment. It's right upon us. We're in the last days. Many of the times, that is not referring to the end of the world, but to the end of the Judaic age, the end of the Jews, and the inauguration of the kingdom of heaven coming to earth. This is like your home, your place of worship. Uh, I don't love Pangea that much, but if you can imagine Pangea and every other church in this city being burnt to the ground, destroyed, all of us kicked out of Jacksonville, sent off to Middleburg or something. <laughs> Lord forbid. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Kind of. So imagine how disheartening that would be as a Jew in first century, and your place of worship has just been destroyed. And John is writing this book of Revelation, and all of this eschatology, that's a fancy word that means the study of last things, this is all the, you know, think of left behind and revelation, it's all like, what's the mark of the beast and all that stuff. But if you look at the Bible, whenever it talks about the end of the world, or or these crazy things in Revelation, they're actually written for a specific purpose. They're not written for us to cross theological hairs. They're written for our comfort, for our encouragement. These letters were written to people who are going to suffer excruciating things at the hands of Rome. And if you can imagine many people going through the great tribulation that happened in Jerusalem, what can you tell them? Mothers eating their own children because there is lack of food? 
Brother turning against brother, father against son. The famine was terrible. It says that that was the worst time period in the history of the world and there will not be a worse time after it. What do you say to them? Well, God sees fit to tell this 22-chapter book of Revelation, the end, the capstone of the story, that really solidifies that this is not just a tragedy. It is a tragic comedy. And it's going to end not with death in a grave, but hope of resurrection. So when Paul, or when John says, I see the new Jerusalem, you think the people reading this, the new Jerusalem, Jerusalem is destroyed. This new Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven from God. And if you look in other places, you'll notice that the new Jerusalem is the church. It is the bride of Christ. It is us. We did this whole series called Living Stones. We are being built up into a temple for God. There is no longer this need for us to go to some temple because the Holy Spirit has been sent. You are a temple. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. That is why we can say that worship is nonstop because you're always in a temple. God's dwelling place. If you are a Christian, if the Holy Spirit has made his home in your heart, if you have been born again, you are a part of the new Jerusalem. So this is the fairy tale ending that we so desire. As I was thinking about this this week, and maybe I was thinking about it too much, I'll just throw this out there for what it is. What happens after two people get married? Well, naturally, they may have a child. There's this verse in Romans 8 that describes the resurrection of the universe. And it describes it as all creation groaning. And it says that, um, in Romans 8.22, it says, For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. This is in Romans, and Paul is saying, creation is pregnant. So there's this wedding, and there's this connection here. There's this pregnancy. The earth is groaning. And it's groaning for the revealing of the sons of God. That's you and me. It's groaning for the revelation of the resurrection of us. All creation, trees out there, I saw a squirrel in front of my house this morning, made me think of Matt talking about squirrels a couple weeks ago. That squirrel is groaning for me to take off this, this mortal flesh and put on immortality. Are you seeing that here? So what is the point of this resurrection? Verse 3 says, 
And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. This echoes in Genesis when man and God walk together in the cool of the day. God and man dwelling together. It's what we celebrate at Christmas. The coming of God, Emmanuel, God with us. So the highest good of all of this resurrection stuff is not for us to just put off these creaky bones, okay? I've had three knee surgeries, 25, supposed to be in my physical prime, but I can't run like I used to. I'm already a 50-year-old man physically. And I don't know if that's good or bad. Need to get on the Bowflex or something. But there's a million reasons why I would want out of this body, right? We have sickness. We have frustration. You stub your toe. There's no stubbed toes in a resurrection body. (laughs) There's no bad hair days in a resurrection body. (laughs) All the ladies said amen. (laughs) And some of the fellas as well. As good as that is, as good as I want, as much as I want another body, as much as I want to be done with fighting my own sin and putting off the old man and putting on the new, I'm ready to just put on the new and have it forever. But a resurrection body and the resurrection of the universe is not just for us to be done with all of that suffering. It is to bring us to God, the presence of God, the glory of God, to be with him, to be with him. You feel sometimes maybe that, I feel this, that my heart is kind of like this little candle flickering in the cold. And that little flame is like my desire for God. And I want that to just erupt and consume me, to to destroy all of the sin. But this, this flame just flickers, and sometimes it's put out. I fall, I stumble. And I just have this desire, I want that to burn brighter. I want that to be taken over. In the resurrection, can you imagine the desires, the passions you feel to be full? I mean, you think about the person you love the most in the world, that affection you feel for them, and to know that that is a paltry feeling compared to the feeling of desire and love for God and for one another in the resurrection. I look forward to that. God's love is so crazy. He pulls out all the stops for this wedding. He says, new heavens, new earth. And I was thinking about This idea, from heaven he came and sought her. God the Father says, my son, 
needs a wife. And he says, son, I want you to go to earth and I want you to die for this harlot. You see, in a lot of fairy tales, you have the, uh, the knight in shining armor coming to rescue the pretty princess. Kill the dragon, get the girl. But we are not pretty princesses, <laughs> as, men, as much as you may think you are. We are not pretty princesses, and yet God decides to cross from heaven into earth to take on the form of a little baby to go and die on a cross for your sins and to rise again so that he could be with you. Love compels you to travel long distances, right? Has anyone gone farther than God has from heaven to earth? I mean, I was thinking about James and Morgan. Morgan, um, a good friend of mine from Seattle, and James, a friend of mine in Seattle, and, and they started dating before Morgan moved here to Jacksonville. And we lived in Washington. That's the other side of the country. How special does Morgan feel that James left everything in Seattle and came to Jacksonville to be with her? I would feel special if someone did that for me. <laughs> Love compels you. And I don't think that James was driving here or flying here begrudgingly. He was probably doing so with great joy to see the woman that he would make his bride and marry. So think of the love of God. God crossed from heaven into earth. What kind of love is that? It boggles the mind. Think about this. God who spins this impossible world, who scatters galaxies and tosses oceans into the sky, that God has come for you. The psalmist says, what is man that you are mindful of him? What is the son of man that you regard him and care for him? He breathed life into dust. And that's what he's coming for? Dust. But dust in the image of God is something else altogether. And God does something. In verse 4, he says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. This is where the curse gets the reverse. This is where sin is undone and grace doubles back and fills the earth like the waters cover the seas. So I want you to think about your story, like you're reading your story in a book or seeing your story portrayed on TV for all to see. There's a lot of pieces in my story that I would like to have uh, redacted, <laughs> to have gone back and done that a little different. And I, I have no doubt that you feel that same way.
Think back to the heartache and the hardest moments of your life that bring tears, those moments where death is knocking at your doorstep, where hope is fading, where all you've done is weep and weep. I get emotional thinking about I will exalt. Every time I preach, I ask Redner, will you sing I will exalt? Because that song, I, I just had that on repeat for a long time in my life. Just go into my, my closet, turn off the lights, and just sit on the ground and listen to I Will Exalt. And in some of the most painful moments of my entire life was also the most joyful moments of my entire life because everything is stripped from you. You have nothing to, to hold on to. So you actually feel in those moments that the heck am I, am I anxious about? Why am I frustrated when God has promised me eons and ages of resurrection glory? Your, your life is super short. And just FYI, you're going to live forever. We can't, we say forever and we think, oh, forever. But how long is that? <laughs> Let's say you live 100 years. Cool. What is 100 years of misery compared to 1,000 years of joy? What about 10,000? 20,000? 100,000? A million years? You're going to be alive doing something in a million years. <laughs> Pretty crazy. <laughs> It kind of starts to put everything in perspective. You see, there's a reason that Paul could say this is light and this is momentary, even though it feels not very light and not very momentary. I think of my friends who are disabled. And I think, how is that light and momentary? That seems like every single day until I go into the ground. What can you tell them? What can any other religion or worldview tell that person to give them hope? Cheer up. <laughs> Verse 4 says, The former things have passed away, and oh, to say that when former things will pass away. Verse five, he says, and he who is seated on the throne said, behold, I am making all things new. He said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Write this down in case you forget. I do not lie. God cannot swear on anybody. So he swears by himself. You can swear on the Bible. You can swear on your mama. God swears on God. I will not break my word. Write this down. Tattoo it on your heart. Behold, I am making all things new. So what part of your story 
What right now do you want God to make new? Verse six, he said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. Do you understand what it means that Jesus is the alpha and the omega? He is the front page and the last page of your story in all of its ugliness. And the cool thing is God doesn't, um, we're not on some sinking ship that God is going to destroy. (laughs) He's into making things new again, recreation, renewal. And so what God does in the universe is what he does individually in your life and in your relationships. He doesn't just get rid of it. He makes it better. It says, and I think 1 Corinthians 15, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, Adam, we will bear the image of the man of heaven, Jesus. And I think there's so many things that I would have done differently. There's so many things that I want to do better. And it's really freeing to know that, man, God is not surprised by anything in my story. He's not surprised. And that the happily ever after is something I can't screw up. You can't screw that up. No matter what you do, you cannot screw up this happily ever after fairy tale ending. There's this really cool passage in James. It says, if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his face in the mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he looks like. So that's if someone is not a doer of the word. Okay. And you think, when I look in the mirror, I stare at it, what do I look like? I look like Jesus. I'm in Christ. How does God see me? See, see me? He sees me in Christ. So when I stare at my face intently and I think, man, I really need to shave, I'm thinking of myself. But when I stare at my face in the mirror with faith, I see Christ. I see perfection. I see holy and blameless, someone that can come boldly before the throne of God. I see Jesus, for I am in him and he is in me. Changes everything. Changes everything. Go to work looking like Jesus. <laughs> that's, that's what it means to be an image bearer of God. To behold him and to be conformed into his image. I want to look like him. And the crazy thing is the more that you look like Jesus, the more you look like the real you. God is not into homogeneous 
resurrection. I imagine I'll have a pretty like epic three foot beard in the resurrection. I'll probably be 6'2", because I've always been trying to be 6'2 and a baller. <laughs> I want to close by offering the same invitation that Jesus offers at the end of this text in verse 6 and 7. He says, To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God and he will be my son. This is a really cool text because it tells me the only requirement is thirst. He will give me the spring of the water of life without payment. And much of Revelation is riffing on Isaiah. It says, come buy from me. Come buy it. But without money. Come buy water. The price, thirst. Another way of saying is this is the price is faith. Look to Jesus. Look to him. He says springs of water will come flowing forth from your heart. And that water is the Holy Spirit given to you. Love poured, poured into your heart. says, I will be his God and he will be my son. The God of the resurrection of the universe calls you son. You think of all the different relationships you have in life, friends, family, children, parents, uh, spouse, and every single one of those loves, it kind of varies a little bit, but God likes to use all of them when he talks about his love for us calls us firstborn son. He calls us adopted children. He calls us his bride. Jesus calls us brothers. He calls us co-heirs. He calls us a lot of things because I think we tend to forget. And as image bearers of God in relationship with one another, we are meant to reflect to one another and to preach to one another through our image bearing the love God has for us. So when we have house party and you're seeing, okay, this is just the most random assortment of people ever, (laughs) that says something about the love of God, that he'd come after some scumbags like us, that he liked to put the old and the young, the black and the white together, the rich and the poor in one. It's been said, and I'm closing, but I'm a preacher, so I can't promise anything. It's been said that the Bible can be summarized in in six words. Uh, And I mentioned it earlier, kill the dragon, get the girl. Teach your children that. What's the Bible about? Kill the dragon, get the girl. Think back to the Garden of Eden. Eve, tempted by the serpent called in Revelation, that ancient serpent, that dragon that is thrown into the lake of fire. But in Genesis, this dragon is tempting Eve. She takes from the tree of life, or or she takes from the forbidden tree. She eats, and then Adam walks up. And you think for a moment in time, there's this moment in time where Eve has fallen and Adam has not. Okay, Adam walks up, And he has a choice to make. 
the entire human race has a choice to make in Adam. There's a death sentence on Eve's head. You shall surely die. What should Adam have done? What Adam should have done, since he was given dominion over all creation, was kill the dragon, and then his wife had this death sentence over her, so what would sacrificial love do? It would die for her. And he would know, because he was sinless, God would raise him from the dead. But Adam didn't do that. So God gives this promise after both Adam and Eve have fallen, and he says, the seed of the woman will crush the head of the seed of the serpent. Genesis 3.15, the first proclamation of the gospel. Someone's going to come to kill the dragon and get the girl to do what Adam could not do. There's a reason why Jesus is called the second Adam, the second man. Because what did Jesus do? He comes down from heaven to earth quietly with the cry of a child. He grows up and he's training to kill the dragon and to get the girl. The church, the bride of Christ, that girl that ugly harlot of a girl, that rebellious daughter, God calls her. So when Jesus goes to the cross, he's doing what the first Adam never did. Jesus kills the dragon by dying, by being killed. And what does the dragon do? Goes and commits suicide in Judas. And in Revelation, he's thrown down. He's cast into the lake of fire, destroyed. And Jesus, he gets the girl. He gets you, the bride, the new Jerusalem. This is the archetype, the original story from which all other fairy tales, myths come from that poetic justice that we desire for everything to be resolved happily ever after is the gospel story. I want to welcome you into that. And if you're living in it right now but have just been ignorant of it, man, this is the most epic love story. I love stories. It's the most epic love story in the history of the world, and I'm in it. I'm in it. So as we come to table to take communion, we come to Jesus. We come to the gospel made visible. This meal looks back to the death of Jesus, his body broken and his blood spilt on our behalf. But this meal also looks forward. For Jesus did not stay dead, but rose again and promised that he would not drink from the cup until he drinks it anew with us in his kingdom. And it is the marriage supper of the Lamb, a grand reception at the wedding, a wedding feast of Christ and his church. So let us partake of communion in faith. Let me pray for us.
Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.